Hi, this is Angel Wilson, and welcome to Spark Up. Thank you for joining me in my lovely little corner of the internet on this podcast. We're going to be talking a lot about autism, but not just autism itself. We're going to do a lot of dialogue talking to actual autistic people, getting their perspectives on autism and how it's looked at in society. We're also going to be talking to providers who provide services for autism and how they kind of see and approach autism. And we're also going to be talking to family members and get their viewpoint on what it's like to have a family member with autism. And we're going to have dialogues with all different kinds of people, including those. Some of those dialogues could get a little deep. We might talk about some some touchy subjects like racism and access to resources. But these are all topics that we know need to be talked about. So I hope you'll join me on this journey and I'll talk to you soon. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to my podcast and my little corner of the internet world. Again, this is Angel, and I'm coming with a another episode. This one's going to be just me, but I feel like it's a much needed discussion and talk because it's talking about some things that we in the autism world usually don't necessarily like to talk about or admit. So this is another one of those tough uh, conversations that need to be had. I actually um, decided to call this episode Inside the House. And the reason why I'm calling it that is actually based on a horror story, like a short horror story. I think it even got turned into a movie at some point some years back. And it's about a, um, the whole gist of the story is that there is a teenager who is babysitting a couple of kids and the kids, I believe, are upstairs in the house. And the teenager starts getting these really strange, menacing phone calls from somebody. And the phone calls escalate saying things like, oh, are you checking in on the children? And things like that. And the teenager's getting really scared. So finally, the teenager calls the police, I believe. And um, the police are like, okay, we're going to, you know, the next time they call in, we're going to track the call and find out where this person's coming from so we can go find them and apprehend them. The teenager's like, okay. So sure enough, the stranger calls again. And um, is the mo- this is the most menacing call they get, you know, they've gotten so far. So now the teenager's really scared and the phone rings again. And at first, the teenager's scared to answer it. Finally, they do. And it's the police. And the police are saying, get you and the kids out of the house right now. The call is coming from inside the house. I repeat, the phone call is coming from inside the house. And that starts this whole, in the movie, I know this starts a whole like spiral of the climax because of the fact that now she has to try to get the kids out of the house and get herself out of the house in one piece when there is someone literally threatening, you know, them inside the house. The reason why I picked that as the as the title is because of the fact that for decades now, autistic people, um, certain providers, allies, and even mental health professionals and educators have been yelling about these these situations and these barriers, basically, with regards to autism and autism treatment. They've been talking about them for decades. And it's kind of fallen on deaf ears or maybe there's been some thought about it, but nothing's really kind of changed and the issues are just getting 
more and more talked about amongst different communities. These are things that I've heard parents come out and tell me about multiple times. I've heard autistic people talk about multiple times. I myself have observed just in my 14, 15, oh gosh, I think it's year 15 now, 15 years kind of working in some capacity in the field. And these are things that I think need to be discussed, uh, not just for those of us who have been in the field for a very long time, but those families and providers who are coming into the field, you know, as, as newbies basically, and are just getting introduced because their child may have just gotten diagnosed or because they just entered the field as a special ed teacher or as a speech therapist. And these are things I think they need to be aware of. So I'm going to talk today a bit about the different areas that I think are contributing to this increasingly, uh, I don't want to say it's a damaged system, but there are definitely, I'm starting to see cracks in the system. And I think these kind of things need to be addressed or at least looked at before those cracks become fissures that just completely break apart the the current layout of the system. And there's even, you know, the thought of, you know, does the system need the crack and do we need to, you know, really re-examine the way that we look at autism in this country altogether? That's a possibility as well. And I also kind of observed the fact that what's going on in the autism field right now is kind of a a reflection of the macro, what's happening in society as a whole. These are, are symptoms of much bigger issues that are that are being covered and addressed and looked at and second guessed in you know in our society and in, in American society in particular. So we're gonna sit down and, and kind of walk through some of those uh, different barriers and cracks in the system right now. area that we're going to look at is access to services, particularly diagnostic services that can lead to an autism diagnosis. And if you don't know, a lot of times an actual diagnosis is the thing that opens you up to a vast majority of services available out there. So all of these stats come from the uh, Center for Disease Control, and these are stats from 2018, which are the most recent stats that they have available on diagnosis. So usually everything starts with a formal diagnostic evaluation, usually a developmental one. So this is when they're just looking to see if there are any developmental delays with the child, because usually this, this is, like I said, the one that starts the ball rolling as far as getting toward autism diagnosis. And almost always, in every case that I've seen, this had to come before an autism diagnosis. Very rarely will any pediatrician or even a neurologist go as far as an autism evaluation until they have a diagnostic, a developmental one, I mean, and see, okay, there are actually developmental delays and these delays seem to be congruent or aligned with autism. So according to the CDC, 42% of children who have autism spectrum disorder received a formal diagnostic eval by age three, so less than half. 19% received an eval between ages three and four, and 39% 
received an eval after age four. So that means that over 58, yeah, about 58% are not even getting an evaluation until age three. If you know anything about uh, development and, um, and, and, and regards to the ages and when a child has ages of development, the CDC also says this, so this is a quote directly from the CDC, the connections in a baby's brain are the most adaptable in the first three years of life. So from zero to three, that is the prime developmental time. That's when the most basic skills are learned. And that's why early intervention is so pushed and so encouraged. But if you have a system where they're not getting even the basic, you know, developmental evaluation until three years or older, and like we said, over half of them, that is what's happening. You've missed out on a critical time period where they could have been getting services and learning. The most successful kids that I have seen in the past have been kids who got into services and started a, you know, a team basically was assembled early on, I'd say between like one and a half to two to like to two. So at least you have a, a solid like two to two and a half years to really get them a consistent amount of intervention services. That could look like anything from a developmental specialist, which is what I used to do, to be to speech therapy, occupational therapy. Um, some if they have if they get go as far as to get an autism diagnosis during that time, they could start getting um ABA that early in, you know, early on in the game. They could get access to a bunch of different other services and resources that early on in the game. But again, if we're not even getting them diagnosed with having and you know, with possible delays until after age three, again, you've just missed out on a critical, critical time period where a lot of really good work could have been done. And that's probably one of the biggest concerns that I've seen. And while there does seem to be like a, there is a, a very, a much smaller gap between say white families and minority families with regards to this, it's narrowed uh, a lot in the last few years, which is good, but it still doesn't take away from that 58% statistic. That's still all kids. So if you factor in the fact that most minority children and most minority families have a harder time accessing just basic medical care anyway, that 58%, that reflects everybody, including white families. What do you think it's going to look like if we looked just at minority families? It's probably more than likely going to be a little bit higher because they have a harder time accessing those kind of services. And as we're going to discuss a little bit later on in this podcast, it's also because of uh, stigma associated with autism. So yeah, if they can't even get in the door to get uh, the the initial diagnosis or the initial evaluation that leads to diagnosis, that's already putting the children at a huge disadvantage or putting them kind of starting out almost like behind the eight ball. I have seen in um, kids and, and even worked with kids who weren't diagnosed until ages six or seven. And by that time, they're already well in the school system. They've already kind of been unfortunately branded as a problem child. They already have that stigma associated with them. And they already are getting the deck stacked against them. And it's really, really unfortunate. So 
Early intervention is extremely important. Early diagnosis is extremely important. And that's an issue that a lot of families in particular have been complaining about, that they don't think that they're getting these initial diagnoses fast enough. So all this talk about diagnosis leads me into what I call the catch 22 of diagnosis. So on one hand, getting an autism diagnosis for the child or even for yourself as an adult can open up a world of resources, services, and opportunities that otherwise you wouldn't be able to have access to. That includes most, um, most of ABA applied behavioral analysis, um, services, that also includes really specialty services, like uh, one of my personal favorite favorites, hippotherapy, which at first people are like, hippos? Like, no, it's not, it's not hippos. It's actually horses. Um, it refers to horse therapy, which um, is not really known too much, but that's because most people can't afford to get it because yeah, not usually covered by insurance. So often families have to go and try to get uh, scholarships or you know other funding including even, you know, SSI, Social Security, to cover some of these outside uh, services. And hippotherapy, that could almost, I could almost do an episode on like the different, uh, I don't like to say alternative therapies because it makes it sound as if they're, they're quack, possibly. But I'll say like the therapies that are outside of the typical box that you think of when you think of autism uh, services that actually have done some good. I would never come and talk about questionable uh, alternative therapies, unless I'm doing an episode talking about do, you know, avoid these kind of therapies. I tend to stay on talking about things that actually benefit you. So, um, yeah, hippotherapy is one that I have seen actually have really good effects with kids. And, you know, an autism diagnosis will also help get you access to different schools that may be aimed just at autistic children. There are uh, a couple around here, right here in Palm Beach County. There's the Palm Beach School for Autism. There's the L School of Excellence. Those are the two best known. Um, there's Mountaineers. There's a couple of other smaller ones, but those are like the biggies that are known in the area. With L's being far and wide, the one that has the most funding and is the, I've I've toured L's. It's it's uh, incredible, um, but that's more for kiddos who seem to be a bit more on the severe side, to be honest. But yeah, having an autism diagnosis can lead to all of these amazing things. The flip side of that is the stigma, unfortunately, that is still associated with the term autism and the diagnosis of autism, which is extremely unfortunate that we still have to deal with this in 2022, but it's still a very real thing. This is especially true within communities that don't really understand autism. And certain, I guess I say fields that work 
with, but are not necessarily part of the autism world, such as the education field, fields that may not have regular interaction with autistic people. They have some, but it's not the cusp of their entire, all of their work. So those just on the outside fields um, have issues with the stigma. Uh, different communities, uh, different minority communities may have issues with the stigma. And I'm going to actually later on in the episode go into some examples of these. But it it is a very real thing. Autistic adults have complained a lot about, um, you know, discrimination on jobs because of, you know, because of the fact that they have an autism diagnosis or if during an interview, the interviewer suspects that they have autism, despite the fact that they may have all the skills to actually do the job. If they can't make eye contact with the interviewer or anything like that, they immediately dismiss them and they don't get a call back for jobs, which is extremely unfortunate, but is very, very much the case. That kind of leads me right into my next issue, which is probably we're getting into the, we're getting increasingly more controversial, I guess you could say, as we're going through the different ones. So these next two that are going to be coming up uh, are the ones that I'm like, ooh, yeah, <laughs> these two. Um, the next one that I'm going to talk about is what is known as the Dunning-Kruger effect. So for those of you who do not know what the Dunning-Kruger effect is, I like to summarize it in this one sentence that's kind of simplifying it, but it's kind of hard to simplify it. And that is people don't know what they don't know, but they assume that they do know. I know that was a bit much, <laughs> so I'm going to explain it again. To me, the Dunning-Kruger effect is basically people don't know what they don't know. So they don't know something, they are unaware of the fact that they don't know this thing, but they assume that they do know about this thing. So they don't have full information about it. They don't have all the facts, but they feel that they do. And they feel that they are and further, further going with it. If they feel that they are an authority on it, even though they do not have all the facts about it and they do not know that they don't have all the facts about it. So what made me think about this particular subject, because this is one that's not actively spoken about per se, but it's something that I see over and over and over again in the autism field. And I'm going to explain why. So um, there's a book that I started uh, reading by an organizational psychologist called um, named Adam Grant. Uh, it, he, he has a couple books out. I think he's a remarkable, um, speaker and writer. He talks a lot about, um, subjects dealing with, uh, of course, psychology with regards to, uh, groups of people, especially in organizations and how, how people learn, how people unlearn. This book in particular talks about unlearning and learning again. The book that, um, I'm talking about is called Think Again. It came out fairly recently and he brought up the Dunning-Kruger effect in, this um in this book i'm not even halfway through it i've already like started quoting parts of the book because i really love it it's uh it's not for everyone because again it's talking about unlearning things that you thought you knew and being open to the idea that you may not know everything i know that's hard for some people to realize but you may not actually know everything and that you're okay with learning more information and exploring that and being curious 
So Grant mentioned this idea and he refers to it as Mount Stupid. And I laughed for a good like three minutes straight at the just the name of it. But um he had a chart in the book where he showed when you're at the novice like level where you just, you know, don't know anything about a particular subject. I'm gonna use autism as an example because this is the field that I work in. You come in and you know absolutely nothing about autism. Most people can recognize, okay, I don't know anything about this subject and I need to learn about this subject. So they start learning more about the subject. Grant says that most people, not all, but a lot of people get to a point where they now have some knowledge on the subject. Not a ton. Now they're kind of like amateur level. They, they, they know the, the, some of the basics, but they don't know a lot of the intricate. This is the point where they, he said they can, they're in danger of hitting Mount Stupid. And what happens is that people get in a minimum, like, you know, intro amount of knowledge about a subject and they just stay at that minimum. They don't research any further. They don't go any further into it. They actually get offended or offensive if someone or defensive when someone comes in and says, hey, actually, new research says A, B, C and D. They completely ignore that because they have now gotten stuck at that one, that low peak that they reached as far as their knowledge of autism, and they're not going any further with it. And that could be for a number of reasons. What I've learned is that for some, they, it's that part of they don't know what they don't know. So they think they know everything they need to know about autism in order to be a great provider, be able to, to catch signs of it in, in, in children be able to provide a, a stable environment for the kids to learn in or, or be in. But there may be things that they don't realize they don't know, and that's making things more difficult for them. That's what's causing the, the issues where it's like, okay, I know what the word autism means. I know some of the symptoms, but I don't know how to handle it. I've seen a lot of providers get into this situation, and a lot of them go one of two directions. They either one recognize, hey, I've gotten to this point, I've gotten to that mountain, but I still don't, that first mountain, and I still don't know enough to be able to really do what, what this child needs and provide what this child needs. So I'm going to go seek out a way to learn more so that I can improve my skills. Those who get past that initial mountain go on to learn more. And yes, you're going to have moments where you're going to know less before you get to learn more but they're open to learning more. They're open to the idea of the research. They're open to have people come in who are a little further ahead of them on the, you know, on the climb up to not, you know, the knowledge climb, so to speak, and are willing to come back and be like, hey, let me help you get to at least, you know, where I am. They're open to growing their knowledge base and they're open to unlearning things that may have been, maybe it was supposedly true 10, 15 years ago, but now it's not like the whole theory of the refrigerator mom, for example, that it was mothers that were causing autism in kids. That was back in like the 40s and 50s. We now know that is not the case at all. In fact, we now know a lot of evidence is pointing toward genetics. That is a complete that was an unlearning process. There are still people out there who don't realize that, hey, that was disproven like 30 years ago. They don't know and they don't know that they don't know. Then you have the other ones who will just stubbornly stay 
on Mount Stupid. That is the hill they're choosing to die on. They will not budge from what Grant calls Mount Stupid. That is as far as they know. These are the ones that I have worked with and they start flat. You know, once I say, hey, maybe you could try A, B, C, and D, they either dismiss it completely or they'll start telling me things like, well, I've done all these other things and I've been certified in all these other things. I'm like, okay, that's great. I'm glad that you have all of that. But clearly you're having a problem with this and I'm trying to help you so that it'll be easier for you and for the child. And it's like talking to a brick wall. I have encountered that more than I would like to have encountered it. It's unfortunate, but that's a very real side of it. So I'm happy that most people tend to be the first group, though. They once they realize that they they can learn more, they seek out more. But that's because they're passionate about what they do. Most I say most providers out there, uh, I think they fall into this category. They just don't know that they don't know. Once they realize it, they're like, oh, yeah, let me go. Let me go and find out more about this so I can be better informed. I love y'all for that. But there's all there. There's there are the few that just will not budge. And unfortunately, when you come across those few, it can be it can be really tough for the families. It can be really tough for other providers trying to come in and work with those people. And it, it, it can be, it can be a lot. It really can. And it's not just with providers, although that was the example that I used here. It could also be with uh, families. If we're dealing with families who don't know much about autism and either assume that they know all they need to know about it, or they just they just don't know. Families can also sometimes fall into one of those two categories. They're either willing to know more. Most, again, majority, vast majority, they're sponges. They want to learn as much as they can. They're like, oh, you have something you can teach me? Great, let's learn. Oh, you also have something you can teach me? Great, let's learn. I absolutely love that because for both providers and families, that is, that is the, that's like 90% of the, the, the problem solved, especially with the family. Because most of the providers are only in there, what, a couple hours a week out of the child's entire life. The families are there 24-7. So when I see families who are sponges and just want to learn everything and want to soak up as much as possible, that makes me so happy because I'm like, this is what's going to determine the trajectory of that child. Not even necessarily, yes, the provider is there to kind of steer and help along the way whenever they're there but also sharing that information with the families. So yeah, um, Dunning-Kruger effect. I've seen it in action. If, uh, if people are willing to unlearn what they learned previously concerning autism, if it's wrong or outdated, and if they're willing to be sponges and learn the outcomes for the, the kids in their care who are autistic, they skyrocket so high. So I, I can't stress that one enough. That one could also probably be a, a episode completely on its own. And the last section that I'm going to uh, talk about, which again is another one that I'm going to be really quick on this one because this is another one that I could easily go spiral out on, into rant mode or can easily turn into one big, huge research project is um, I jokingly refer to this as the love of money or the 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 cream issue. Those of you who are old school hip hop Wu Tang Clan, yeah, you know what cream stands for. Cream stands for cash rules everything around me. 
And unfortunately, we have gotten to the point where autism is such a huge business that that's also slowly but surely becoming the case. Cash rules everything around me. I'm going to give you this one quote that I got from uh, Elemy. And I think by the time both of my mini sparks come out, you would have heard me talk about this organization already. There's a whole, I do a whole episode that'll come out a little bit later about this particular organization. But it, but um, they had a they had actually some statistics that I found very interesting, uh, on their site. So what they said was in 2015, the total cost of care, and this is in the United States, the total cost of care for children and adults with autism was 268 billion, with a B. Children and adults, 268 billion. This number is predicted to increase to 461 billion by 2025 if more effective interventions are not established for support of autism across a lifespan. So what does that basically mean? Well, first of all, you're dealing with a multi-billion dollar industry. Autism has become a multi-billion dollar industry. And any of us who have lived in a capitalist society for long enough understand that once it's realized that there is money to be had in a field, money is going to be had. Sometimes at the cost of the very people that the field is supposed to be helping. So you'll see this come up a lot more in the mini spark episodes. This is almost like a preview to some things that are going to be talked about in the mini sparks. One is uh, already up at the time of this recording. The second one uh, will probably come up either after the recording or just or just before. But both of them kind of tie into this and start kind of giving you an idea, uh, especially the second one, on the level of, of, of money that's involved in this field and the cost of to a, an average family. You're looking at average family. I think I think the 2014 or 2015 statistic was about 2.4 million. I think that was put on by the Autistic Society here in America. I think they said 2.4 million lifetime cost of uh, services and care for an autistic individual. So just on the family standpoint alone, you're looking at 2.4 million. Once you start factoring in insurance and providers and uh, school and, and, and all those other things, that's when you start getting it skyrocketing in the billions. And unfortunately, there are people who will, who not even will, are, are currently taking full advantage of this and are really, really are turning it into, from a field into an industry. It's, it's becoming an industry if it hasn't already. And again, I'm going to, I'm not going to say much more about it in this episode, just because I will start going on, I will stand on my soapbox and start going on a full-on rant. I want to save it for an actual full-on episode. I'm probably later going to do a full-on episode just talking about the money because that's going to take a lot of research. This alone took a little while for me to track down, but it it's it, it's going to involve a lot of research because there's a lot of numbers I think they're going to shock people. Um, everything from just these numbers of the overall cost of care to how much uh, people are paid to do what they're doing. Um and how incredibly insane that cost is, how much uh, different companies make from this field. 
it's i have a feeling that's gonna get really it's gonna get kind of ugly so um and it's sad because i remember when it wasn't but yeah we're quoting wu-tang now <laughs> uh cash rules everything around me absolutely So what are a couple of examples where I've kind of seen some of these issues in action? Because I've had too many families to count at this point as far as uh, services have gone. And I definitely have seen examples of a lot of these. Uh, for example, a family with a child who hadn't yet been diagnosed, but had a lot of uh, behaviors and concerns. And there was a history of autism in the family The the mom was just trying to find daycare. For the child daycare services and unfortunately the family was making too much money to qualify for free daycare for the child but they weren't making enough to really be able to afford a daycare center where they'd really be able to address the child's uh, needs i think that's a great example of the the cash rules everything around me concept where there's all this money floating within the field, within the industry, but it's really not helping the ones who are, particularly the ones who are right in that weird middle gray area where they make too much to qualify for most financial assistance, but they don't make enough to afford everything because the cost of living has skyrocketed. Uh, so that's like a, a cream example, as I call it. Another example, this one I think is a good example of the Catch-22, which is the uh, the access to services, but the stigma at the same time. I had a family who um, removed their child from daycare, but since they had gotten an autism diagnosis, they qualified for the school district child fine program. So the child moved from the current daycare over to child fine. But the reasons why they moved was because even though they'd had this child for I don't years, the daycare suddenly said that they couldn't handle the child. The child's behavior had not changed from before to after the diagnosis. But after the diagnosis came down, suddenly the daycare said, oh, we need someone in here because we can't handle the child. Then they said, oh, if you can't get the child's behaviors under, you know, under control, then the child can't be here anymore. So right in that one example, you had both sides of the catch-22. Because of the diagnosis, they were able to put the child in a program where they can focus more on the child's needs with regards to autism. But the flip side of that was that because of this stigma associated with the diagnosis of autism, the former daycare that they're in, which the child was actually doing fairly well in, immediately got 
you know, really, really iffy about the child because suddenly the child had a diagnosis of autism. Child's behavior didn't change. The child didn't get wilder or, or more out of control. They actually calmed down a bit afterwards, but the daycare son says that they couldn't handle the child anymore. That's one example, but I've heard that same story repeated multiple times where the moment an autism diagnosis comes into play, suddenly everyone's hands off. Everyone's like, oh, nope, nope, I, I can't deal with this. Even though the child is behaving the exact same way they were before the diagnosis happened. So that's a great example of catch-22. Um, the Dunning-Kruger effect, which is, in this case, is going to be not knowing what you don't know. Um, there was a family that despite the entire team telling the family that this child had very, very clear signs of autism, all of us saw the signs of autism. The child even has an older brother who is on the autism spectrum is diagnosed with it. The family insisted to us that the child was not on the spectrum because as they put it, oh, we did a genetic test and they didn't see autism. So they don't have autism. And when we asked questions about this test, they couldn't really tell us anything about it. They wouldn't tell, at least me, they wouldn't tell me where they even got the test, who conducted the test. I don't know. But once they got this proof that they needed that autism was not the case, they shut all of us down completely and were like, nope, not autism. Because, you know, and I was just like, well, you at least want to possibly have her seen by a neurologist to see? Nope. Nope, it's not that. She's just stubborn. And that was the end of conversation. So that's a that's a good example of Dunning-Kruger where I, I really don't want to say Adam Grant's like Mount Stupid idea, but when you get a certain amount of knowledge and then you just stay there and you are not willing to go any further. Um, that was an example of that one. And then finally, I've heard this one so many times where there are parents or caregivers who have concerns, some professionals like in the, you know, early, um, early um, intervention teams have also have concerns about possible autism. And so the family or caregivers go to the pediatrician and the pediatrician declines to do a referral to a neurologist because they say they want to give the child more time. Like, oh, let's wait a year. Oh, let's wait until they turn three. Oh, let's wait until let, let let let's not, you know, jump into that. Oh, let's give them time. They're still they're still in, you know, the early years and so forth. That I think is an example of both excess and the Dunning-Kruger effect where like I said earlier, the people who are kind of the gatekeepers to those further services are gatekeeping. They not uh, oftentimes not intentionally again, because they don't know that they don't know. Um, they may have a very set idea of what they think autism looks like. And this child's not, well, this child's not sitting in a corner rocking, so they must not have autism, you know, that kind of, that kind of belief. So because the child's not meeting their idea of what autism stereotypically looks like, it can't possibly be autism. And I've even heard some pediatricians or parents have come back and told me the pediatricians have said things like, oh, you know, they just need time or Again, the stubborn thing. I'm so tired of hearing this. Oh, they're just stubborn. They're literally not turning to their name. You're calling their name and they're not responding. Either there's an issue with hearing or there's something else going on. 
because most typical developing kids are going to turn to their name. You know, there might be an occasion where they ignore you because they're mad at you for some reason as a toddler, but every time you call their name, they don't answer or don't turn. No, there's an issue. And to have that dismissed is extremely frustrating. So yeah, that's access and the Dunning-Kruger effect at play. And again, these are a couple examples, but some of these examples I have seen over and over. And some of you listening have probably experienced these yourself. If your parents are caregivers, I'm sure you've run into this at some point in time. If you haven't personally, you know someone, maybe another parent that has. If you're a provider, you may have seen, you you may be like a, a staff worker and you've seen this happen you know, within your own center. You've seen this happen within your own school. And it's unfortunate. And these are things that, again, I've heard over and over and over again. And just it, everyone just like, yeah, well, eh. and then they just go on. Everyone just goes on with life. But they are, again, cracks in a system that if they're not addressed, they're going to cause bigger cracks and they could possibly crumble the system. And it does go, like I said in the very beginning, bring it back to what I said in the beginning, it does lead to the question, do we need to rebuild the system when it comes to autism? Do we need to completely kind of change the way that we view the condition, the children, teens, and adults who have it, how we implement services? Does all of that need to be completely reexamined? Again, that could be a completely different episode all by itself. I'm not going to go into that in today's episode because we are wrapping up. But I think that's that's something that we really collectively in this field need to think about all these different issues and how do we address them? Because they need to be addressed because if they're not, they're just going to get bigger and they could crumble the, the field as we know it. They easily could. So, yeah. Food for thought. And with that, we are going to wrap up this episode of the podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. This was this was a bit of a, you know, this got increasingly more and more spicy and um, I, I stepped on a soapbox a couple of times, but hey, that happens sometimes in the podcast world and sometimes things need to be said. So I'm saying what I feel needs to be said with regards to the autism world, because you can't solve a problem if you're not aware of the problem, if no one is speaking about the problem. There are problems and once you identify them, you can find solutions to them. And that's something that I want to help facilitate in this field. There are problems. Let's find solutions to them. If you want to continue this conversation with me, if you want to add your own uh, two cents and tell me about it, if you even want to possibly, you know, if you're, especially if you're a provider or a parent and want to eventually come on the podcast yourself to talk about one or more of these things, I would love to hear from you. You can email me. My email address is Angel W A N G E L W at sparkguidance.com. Spark Guidance spelled S P A R C G U I D A N C E. You can also check out my website at sparkguidance.com. The full podcast, if you came here through another, found this one through another link, 
uh, www.sparkupautism.com. So S-P-A-R-C-U-P-A-U-T-I-S-M.com. Spark Up Autism. That's the website that has all the different episodes on there. You can hit me up on Instagram at at sparkguidance, same spelling. And thank you for joining me in my lovely little uh, rant slash soapbox slash this is the issues I see in the autism field. I will talk to you guys again soon. And remember, be blessed. Don't be stressed. Bye.